Hi, it's Melissa Saria, and this is The Loss Encounters, an interview series that explores what we create from loss. Each week, I talk with a changemaker who has harnessed their creativity in the face of adversity to drive innovation, improve lives, and empower others. For over five decades, Bernie Krause has ventured to some of the most remote corners of our planet, capturing the symphony of nature's voices. As a pioneer in the world of sound ecology, he's played a crucial role in raising awareness about the urgency of preserving these precious sonic environments. His illustrious career as a bioacoustician and sound ecologist started on a different note. Originally a musician, he's worked with artists such as The Doors and Stevie Wonder, and his recordings have graced countless documentaries, exhibitions, and film scores, including Apocalypse Now and Rosemary's Baby. As an author, he's also explored the impact of human-generated noise pollution. His touring sound exhibit, The Great Animal Orchestra, plunges viewers into a magnificent digital soundscape that feels vast and vulnerable. He writes, I have come to believe that soundscapes, especially natural or wild ones, hold secrets that might help us solve many of life's mysteries. If only we had a way to decipher the code. Bernie Krauss, welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Bernie, it's fascinating to consider that these soundscapes might hold secrets to life's mysteries. What prompted you to have this insight? Well, I was recording in Kenya on a project for the California Academy of Sciences. And I was resting one night, it was 1983, with my earphones on, listening to the night sounds of a particular habitat. And all of a sudden, I realized that these sounds were not only organized in some kind of magical way, but they also conveyed some very important information. And I began to listen to it, and I thought to myself, I'm just dreaming here. But when I took the soundscapes back to San Francisco, where I was living at the time, and and began to analyze them, I realized that there was a lot of information there contained in the whole soundscape of the habitat. And before, many years before, the way that I studied natural sound was a single animal at a time. We went out with these big parabolic dishes and recorded the bird in a tree and took it out of context and tried to understand what was going on acoustically in the natural world. But we were finding we were running up against hard surfaces all the time, like stone walls, that we couldn't get over or under, and we couldn't understand what was really happening until we began to look at these things more holistically. And that's a major part of what I've brought to soundscape ecology, and I heard it as a musician. Other people are listening to it in in different ways, but I heard it as a musician. I was listening to the whole soundscape and wondering what was there and discovered all of this magical stuff. Well, let's listen to a clip of the Great Animal Orchestra. That was an excerpt of Bernie Krause's work, 
the Great Animal Orchestra. Bernie, you were born in Detroit, Michigan. Were you the kind of kid that ran through fields catching crickets, or did your relationship with the natural environment develop later on in life? Actually, no. I started really engaged with the natural world, the things that calmed me down. We lived in a a spot in Detroit in the early 1940s that wasn't developed yet, and it had previously been farm country. So we had a lot of space around us where our house was built at that particular time. And the natural sounds that came from this field and and a little bit of a forest were always engaging to me. And these were the, the sounds that made me feel good, that made me calm down, that made me know what season it was just by opening that window and listening to the soundscape. In the summertime, in particular, it was magical at that moment. There were lots of birds and lots of insects and lots of frogs around. And that was the soundscape that really informed my life from the earliest point. Your work demonstrates remarkable listening skills. You've described some of them in your early years. But did your time as a musician also contribute to honing your ear? Or would you say that you have a natural inclination for careful listening? Well, I don't see very well. So most of my world is informed through what I hear. And that makes a big difference in how you listen. So I was a careful listener very early on. And also, I have a terrible case of ADHD attention deficit disorder. And so hearing natural sound and hearing that rhythm of the birds and the insects and so on at any given time was something that was very alluring to me. And early on, I compared it to what I was hearing musically and what I was being presented musically. I was trained as a professional musician, played violin, learned composition, And when I was a teenager, I switched to guitar and had guitar as a major instrument for a long time. All I was hearing was when I went outside to listen to natural sounds, the impact that the natural sounds had on me was profound. I mean, it was the only thing that stemmed the the anxiety of the ADHD that I was suffering as a child. In the great animal orchestra, you incorporate different animal sounds, and you also convey a more intricate ecosystem. You refer to the composition as a biophonic narrative. Can you briefly describe what viewers see and hear when they step into that space? Well, when they step into a space like that, mostly what we're trying to concentrate on is the sound, because we're a visual culture, and we've spent a lot of time learning what we understand of the world by what we see. But The soundscape informs us in many different ways and many more ways than what we see. I always say that what you see is worth a thousand words. A soundscape is worth a thousand pictures. So it's it's really important to learn to listen because when we listen in a discriminating way, we find things about our world that we really can't see and we can't understand. You have expressed concern in your writing that we now live in what you have said is a visually dominant culture. Why does this preoccupy you? And what do you think we're losing through this? Well, we're losing a lot of what the sensibilities of our ears provide for us. For instance, when we listen to the natural world, the natural world is this narrative of place. And it tells us when we're listening to these sounds where we're at, what season we're in whether or not this habitat is healthy, our effect 
the human effect on the natural world that we're listening to. It's all there in that narrative of place. And what we're finding here, for instance, where I live now in Northern California, is probably the bird density and diversity, the sounds of these springtime sounds of birds, for instance, the dawn choruses and evening choruses, have diminished in the time I've been recording them since 1993 when we moved here. They've diminished probably 70%. The numbers of birds have fallen and the numbers of species have dropped largely because of global warming and also because habitat development that's had an impact on these on these creatures. I hear all of that, and I have recordings of that so I can actually explain to people what's happening. When we did the Great Animal Orchestra for the uh, Cartier Foundation and it first opened up, people didn't believe that habitats were changing that radically. Did you have to tell them about that so that they could believe you? All I need to do is, is play the sounds for them, and they believe it. Right. To what degree do you intend for people not only to just see and hear the sounds in your wildlife concert, but also physically feel the vibrations running through their bodies as one does sitting in that space? Yeah, that, that's what's really remarkable about it. But one of the things I want to say about natural soundscapes, and in particular the Great Animal Orchestra piece that just closed at the Exploratorium in San Francisco, is that these soundscapes work because they're not culturally biased. There's no cultural connection like there is with music, because music immediately signals a culture that it comes from. But with natural soundscapes, it reaches across all lines with people and all ages with people because it has none of this historical or cultural bias to it. So it reaches everybody at some level. And the sounds are physical, and they reach us in a physical way because they make our ears vibrate which is how we hear. So the natural soundscapes that I've presented in this exhibit are the kinds of things from healthy habitats when they were healthy. But all of these sounds and habitats have changed now because of global warming, but they've changed very quickly over the last 20 years. It's getting to the point where it sounds like to me that it's very critical. And if we don't do something about these issues, we've got a serious problem. Even in your daily recordings of work, you've described how long it can take you to capture certain sounds. Can you give us an example of what that might look like? Yeah, when I first began, I could record for 10 hours and get one hour of usable material for an exhibit, for instance, or a record album. Now it takes probably a thousand hours. That's like half a year of recording to get one hour of, of usable material, partly because the habitats are not as vibrant as they once were, and partly because there's too much noise. There's too much human noise. Your recordings of natural elements have a distinct artistic quality to them. How do you approach the process of recording and arranging these sounds to create these compositions? Well, mostly the soundscapes that I've created are not collages or anything like that. They're just straight examples of really beautiful periods of time from these habitats. So they're not edited or mixed in any unusual way. The only thing that I have that is done that way is an example from the oceans, because the oceans are so wide, sound is dispersed all over them. So I've combined fish and whales and crustaceans and different uh, marine animals so that it's a cohesive tapestry rather than just individual sounds. 
which is the way we would probably hear the ocean sounds. How do you go about recording those ocean sounds? We have a little microphone called a hydrophone, hydro meaning water, and we're able to record in marine environments with this hydrophone. We just drop it down. It's on a 10-meter cable, and we drop it down off the side of a boat and listen to the ocean. It's wonderful. Where have you traveled to to capture these sounds? Everywhere, Fiji, Australia, Hawaii, the San Juan Islands up near Washington, off the East Coast, down in the Caribbean. I mean, there's sound all over. You can drop a hydrophone in a little pool in back of your house after a spring rainstorm and hear little insects swimming around and gnashing their teeth at little things. (laughs) Is there a place in particular that you love to go back to over and over again? Well, I really, I'm drawn to Alaska. And the reason is because it's a place that's three times the size of France. And there are 750,000 people there. It's a place where you can walk for a week in any direction and not hit a fence or a road. It's a place where there are no rangers to tell you about the life cycle of a bear or an elk. And best of all, there's nothing to buy. So it's really wild. (laughs) And are you welcome there by locals? Do they participate with you in some of the recordings or do you work alone all the time? Pretty much I work alone. I like working alone because in sound, every other person that joins you is going to make some kind of noise, like I was just rattling papers here. And it really has an effect on the animal behavior in the areas that we go to to record. And if there are too many people around, it just changes everything. How does your work reflect the greater sense of urgency that you've described in terms of ecological loss? I never really intended to collect material that reflected loss when I first began. But what I found was that at first in in the late 1980s, I began to notice a change. Like, for example, I was recording up in the Sierra Nevada mountains about a four-hour drive east of San Francisco. and I was recording there one year, and a logging company had come through posting notices that they wanted to do a new protocol called selective logging. And I said, well, is there going to be any environmental impact because of selective logging? They said, no impact at all. And I said, can I record? And they said, sure. So I went there and recorded in June of 1988. And that summer, the logging company did their selective logging, meaning taking out a tree here and there. And in 1989, after the logging operation, I went back and the whole place had been transformed. From what you could see, not a stick or a tree was out of place. But from what you could hear, all of it was gone. The birds had gone because just a few changes in that habitat, the birds just didn't inhabit that particular place anymore. And they left. But you can't tell from looking at it that it's changed at all. That was the first time I noticed that human endeavor was actually having an impact on the natural soundscape. The danger there, Bernie, is that you're saying it's invisible to the eye, but the change is happening. Yeah. It's almost like a Saint-Exupéry. What is essential is invisible to the eye. What emotions does it elicit in you in those moments? First of all, I'm surprised at how profound the messages to us. Secondly, it makes me feel very sad. I really have to think hard and long when I get up in the morning about what I want to do and how I want to proceed with this work now. 
because it's getting to the point where so much of it has gone. Over 70% of my, of my archive that I've been recording for 50 years now is from habitats that no longer exist. On a personal note, presumably your work has brought you tremendous joy, but I hear you expressing a sadness, an increasing sadness. How do you reconcile the two? I don't. I mean, there's no way to reconcile it. They exist in parallel with one another. I get tremendous joy when I actually hear the sounds now, but the sounds are diminished. And also at my age, I'm 85 years old now, I'm beginning to lose my hearing. And so that's another thing that's really hard to live with at this point. At the same time, when I go out and record, the material doesn't come through the microphone anymore and it's not on tape. It's not recorded because it's not there. You've openly discussed how nature's tranquility helps alleviate your ADHD. You wrote, and I'm quoting, it nurtures me in ways that no other experience, vocation, or chemical intercession can. In fact, wild soundscapes have become the guiding voices of the divine, my mantras, my sermon on the mount. Why was it important for you to share this with your readers? This stuff is really therapeutic to us. The reason that I started it and the reason that I got involved in it was because it made me feel good when I was out there recording. I want them to know what the impact is on me and how being present in that world, in the natural world, makes me feel. And I hope that other people can enjoy the same kind of benefit from it that I've had. Your work is often described as being at the intersection of science and art. What draws you to both disciplines? It's uh, very clear. When I write a paper, a scientific paper, and get it published, maybe six colleagues will read it. If I do a program like I did for the Fondation Cartier in Paris, the Great Animal Orchestra, over a million and a half people see and hear that presentation. And because it's formed as a work of art, it hits you emotionally rather than intellectually. And it has an emotional impact that causes you to think about what it is that's happening in this world that you inhabit. So the transformation of the scientific data into works of art is seminal to my idea of what I need to do in this world now. And so I'm taking all of my material and transforming it now. So this sense of urgency that you're describing has a real impact on your creative choices. What are you looking at more closely now? Well, I'm just looking more closely at how we're going to make it through this terrible period that we're going through on all levels. And uh, in particular with the effect that we're having on the natural world and our inability to be able to come to terms with what it is we need to do to make those necessary changes as a culture, as political entities, as uh, economic entities, all of them. Our survival depends on it. And uh, the closer we come to realize that, and the sooner we come to realize it, I think the better off we're going to be. Your work distinguishes between sounds and noise. In your book, The Power of Tranquility in a Very Noisy World, you highlight that as Americans, we are a noisy culture. Can you elaborate a bit on that idea for us? We're a young country, and uh, we're still trying to have our egos recognized somehow. James Watt was, uh, in the early 1980s, Ronald Reagan's Secretary of the Interior. And one of the first things that he did was to shut down the Bureau of Noise Management. And when he was asked why he, sh why he did that, 
He said, well, noise is power. And the noisier we are as Americans, the more powerful we appear to be to others. So there's something about the DNA of that idea that it runs very deep in the veins of many Americans. And they have loud motorcycles and they drive with their windows down and cars with loud sound systems. And we go to noisy restaurants to eat, which are all created, by the way, for quick turnover, because the noisier those places are, the physical effect on us is one of distraction and anxiety. And so we are a country of noise. We're noisy politically, we're noisy culturally, and we just can't seem to help ourselves. And so it affects our well-being as a society. Sure, it affects our health. Which countries have you visited that have quieter cultures? Northern European countries tend to be a little bit quieter. There are groups that live more closely connected to the natural world that understand the effect of noise on the, the natural world around them. And uh, they tend to be a little bit quieter, a little bit more careful, a little bit more conscious of their presence and the effect it has on other living organisms around them. It's a problem we have to deal with. And it's ironic, right, that just as we are becoming a noisier culture, the sounds in our environment are being silenced. The natural sounds, the sounds that are really therapeutic and helpful to us and remedial are cut out because they're overwhelmed by our noise. What advice would you give to individuals and communities looking to reconnect with a natural world? Shut the hell up and get out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind expression. You have to spend some time out in the natural world and don't be afraid. You'll be just fine out there. And the other thing is to you have to be quiet and we have to learn, we have to study to be quiet. What does that mean? That means we have to pay some attention to the sounds around us and how they affect us when we are quiet, when we're actually listening, actively listening, engaged in that process. Do you have a practice of your own that you could share with us that helps you to listen, to quiet down, to be present? Sure. When I go out and record, that's the best way to do it. I try not to rub my hands, rub my body. I try not to slap mosquitoes. I try not to cough. I try not to sneeze or sniff. I try to be really, really quiet because I want to hear the very subtle pieces of that fabric of sound that uh, is so engaging and important. Those are the sounds I want to hear, not me. Do you think that in our culture, we are somewhat afraid of silence. There's no question about that. That has to do with making ourselves heard and seen at the same time. And so a culture of noise is very, very important to us. We've nurtured that a long time. You know, I mean, it started this whole thing about noise. It has its roots going back as far as 11th, 12th, 13th century when we built churches with big, thick walls to shut out the sound of the natural world and separate it. And the only thing that we heard was the echo of our own voices in these huge churches that populate Europe. And we made that separation from the natural world at that point because it was considered by the church as evil, these sounds. Where are you going next? What will you be recording next? What can we look forward to? What I'm working on is a new project for the Cartier Foundation. We're 
trying to get the archive placed at the foundation in Paris. And then we're going to be developing from that works of art that are derived from my archive. They're actually looking at the archive as a standalone work of art in its own right. Pretty interesting concept. And will these be audio pieces, visual pieces? They'll be both audio and visual. Because again, we're a visual culture. And for the first time, we can actually see impressions of sound either projected or we can use different kinds of art pieces to actually show what we're listening to. And to have that visual component, Bernie, is to realize that suddenly nothing appears. Well, it shows in a healthy environment the ways in which sound is organized. Each species of organism finds its own bandwidth, which is unimpeded by other organisms. So it's like its own television channel or radio station. So it finds its own bandwidth, and it stays there. And these habitats are defined by these structures of sound. And you can actually see it happen in real time in the Great Animal Orchestra, which is really what's so neat about it, because it does have that visual component to it. And Bernie, you also restore a sense of grandeur through the scale of the work. As we look and listen to it, we realize just how important and powerful that ecosystem is. I think it's a beautiful reminder of our relationship with the environment and our place in this world. Bernie, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The Lost Encounters. If you enjoyed our conversation today, please subscribe and leave a comment right here. It really helps us reach more people who may enjoy these talks. For exclusive updates, follow us on Instagram at The Lost Encounters or visit our website at thelossencounters.com to dive deeper into the stories we share. I'm Melissa Saria, and I look forward to exploring more about what we create from loss in our next episode. Talk to you then.